Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. We're looking at what difference it makes really to live with Jesus. Because essentially, as someone who was um, a spiritual development pastor for quite some time, I had nothing else to do but figure out how people grow, why people don't grow in, in their spirituality. And um, so it was really quite a privileged uh, season for me to do that because I got, I got insights and access to global statistics on spiritual health, church life, all that sort of thing, and to really uh, pull them apart and deconstruct how people grow and how that works. And um, the books that I've written obviously stem from that 10 years, more or less. And, um, but what we find is, if you can boil it all down, if we did a snap poll and said, how much of your life genuinely, your real life, your Monday life, when you get to work and then you get to the end of the day, if you did a quick assessment, how much of that day genuinely is inspired and empowered by God's Spirit within me, we would normally say very little, if at all, depending on how we've run that rhythm of our day. We've gotten through the day, we know God's present, but really I'm not aware of Him giving me much help through the day. I've done it on my own steam uh, with the best intentions. I'm trying to be God's person in the place that I'm at, but sometimes I turn around and go, God, I'm here, where are you at? And that, sent, that tends to be the reality for the huge majority of believers. And yet the biblical promise is very, very different to that. What we're essentially doing is living with good intentions, an Old Testament life in a New Testament context. So Jesus has gone to the cross. We know we're forgiven. But, but for the past 50 or 60 years now, we've been preaching largely in church life in the West, a gospel of salvation. What that means is that Jesus died for your sins, yes, you can place your faith in that, that he's done it for you. You could never do that for yourself. He had to go to the cross and pay the price that a human being had to pay for a human being's shortcomings and pay that price for us because we could never do it in our own steam. So he's done that. So I place my faith. I go, okay, I can't do it. You've done it. Thank you, Jesus. When I get to heaven one day, uh, I've just got to survive between now and then, not, not screw the whole thing up too much, if I can say that, delete the wrong word from the from the tape there. Um, but that's, I know what goes through the normal human mind. I've got one too. Let's, let's just not try and mess this thing up too much. So when the day comes and I'm presented before God, it's like I'll look back, go quickly and go, I'm glad I was with Jesus um, and I'm in. And so he becomes a ticket to salvation, but it really only applies in, in its fulfilment when I get to heaven one day. So that's the gospel of salvation. But if you look at your New Testament and you actually read what it says, that term is not in the New Testament. There was no such thing as a gospel of salvation. It's a gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the salvation sets me up for kingdom will come one day, which it will. But Jesus didn't preach that. He said the kingdom's coming now and you're invited to pray, Lord, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. It's a gospel of the kingdom. Uh, most clearly epitomised in Mark 1.15, he was an itinerant preacher, Jesus. So he had this term, and it's like a, the ultimate sticky statement, if you understand that terminology these days. You can easily remember it. Every word's completely loaded. He says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so in, those, in that statement, he's saying the kingdom, this kingdom, it is to come, but it is at hand. You can literally reach out, you can grasp it, you can apply it to your situation and the kingdom, the king's domain where God reigns can be in your life now. Now it's never completely fulfilled, but there's a lot more to be appropriated now than most of us would believe. And so the different words there, time, kingdom, at hand, repent and believe. And it's repent and believe that I want to get to today. 
Because the problem we have is that well-meaning Christians like you and I are trying to impact the world and yet we haven't been fully impacted. We're We're trying to promise and give away and sell, if you like, transformation, but we haven't been transformed. Because we're waiting for it one day too. But when we measure the morality, the divorce statistics, the mental health statistics, all of the addictions, pornography, the whole thing, Christian world, non-Christian world, there is no difference. So I know it's no one here. I know you're all fully mature and empowered by the Holy Spirit, but all the rest of the believers out there, none of them have quite figured this out. So I'm preaching this one for the tape so that they will get it, okay? And, um, and you can pass it on. But what I, what, what, this thing, I'll tell you, I can get wound up and get off my notes here and it's really dangerous, but if there's one thing that we need to understand and appropriate, we could, we could camp on this topic for the next 12 months and, and if we can land it, then we're going to change the world. That is that the Spirit of God made access through the cross, this Spirit that is within us, there's a, there's a promise and a, and a possibility for comprehensive change so that that which is within overflows to change the world. That I become genuinely transformed. I start being and doing, and it's like Dave said through communion, I'm just seeing things different. The veil has gone, the power is there, and it so consumes me that I can't help but let it overflow into the world. That becomes the irresistible gospel. And the problem with our gospel that we're giving is it's so darn resistible. It's so easy to push back. The world looks at it and goes, there's nothing you're talking about, there's nothing you're demonstrating that, that compels me, and, and it's not looking irresistible. But in the New Testament, it was. They changed the whole, they toppled the Roman Empire essentially through this irresistible gospel. And there's something happened then that's not so much happening now. So let's have a look at what this radical change can look like. Galatians 2.20, Paul talks about it. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I know it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, so that's in, in, with the substance of this life, I live by faith. So I'm in the flesh, I'm, I'm real, I'm not in heaven, I'm not a, not a fluffy angel with, with wings on now. This is this life that he's promised me in the flesh, in now, and we're going to end up back in the flesh one day. No matter when Jesus comes back again, his ultimate plan is that there's a new heaven, a new earth, we're back on earth, you know, and it's, and it's flesh and substance living with the breath of God again, Eden will come back. And so that's where we are is where we're going to end up. It's just going to be a lot better then. Um, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's look at some key terms here because we've got to understand the basics and then be able to apply them. And there's a lot of confusion, and there has been since Jesus died, about how this actually works out. So Paul says, I've been crucified. You look at that and go, well, look, he wasn't pinned on a cross uh, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that his old nature, the, his old compulsions have been put to death in the sense of I have no obligation anymore to fulfil them. I can still do it. I can choose to. All the pieces still work like they used to. So I can choose to dive into that lifestyle. But he said, I've crucified that. That, that obligation is gone. In Romans 8, he says we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature. The obligation now is to follow the Spirit. So when he says crucified, he's saying this, this need, this overwhelming desire that can't be beaten has been pinned to the cross with Jesus. So he says, then I live in the flesh. So he's saying the substance of who I am is still here. And then he lives in the flesh um, by faith. And by faith, he's meaning I live in complete reliance moment by moment. I'm living from God. 
I'm not living for God. I'm not trying to do it in my own steam. I'm living in my flesh, but I'm living from his spirit as well. And so the new God life, the new kingdom life, is not a life where your flesh is gone. It's a life where your flesh is empowered with God. Interesting concept, isn't it? So let's define, because the New Testament talks of three key terms here. The flesh, the old nature, and the new self. And we don't need to get too technical. We don't need to be psychotherapists to understand that. The text explains itself here. So Paul's talking about this flesh, because you'll often hear in Christian circles, and it happened back in Jesus, or just after Jesus' day, Paul and John were combating this idea that the flesh, my flesh, your flesh, is evil. That in your flesh there can be nothing good come of that. And that as I grow in my faith, somehow I've got to, I've got to not, it's like this, this tent that I'm in is a waste of, waste of atoms or something. Uh, that the flesh is inherently evil. And so there was a term came up in the New Testament days called Gnosticism. Uh, and there was a number of things attached to that, but one of them was that the flesh is inherently evil. So you can do what you want with your flesh. The problem with that is that Jesus came in flesh. And if flesh was sinful, how could Jesus be fully God and still be in flesh? That there is nothing sinful about your flesh. God made it. He made you. You're beautifully and wonderfully made. He doesn't want less of you. He wants all of you. This is the change of dynamic. What he wants less of and what you need less of is your old nature. So your old nature is literally that old self that dwells in the flesh, if you like. Most of it's contained in your human brain physically. The neural pathways are all there. The, the addictions, the compulsions, we burn them in through habit and so on. But your old self, your old nature has no capacity within itself because your flesh has not got the capacity to live the God life just with my flesh and bone. You can't do it. We were designed in the Garden of Eden, if you reflect back in Genesis where it talks about the dust. He were formed out of dust and made flesh, just like almost every other beast that's out there is, is made from the dust. But what made us human was the presence of God, the breath of his spirit came, dwelt with the flesh, the dust, and that became a human being. So in the absence of the spirit, it's impossible to live the life that God calls us to. So there's nothing inherently wrong with our flesh. It's just not enough to live the God life. It hasn't got the capacity within it to live the, the new life. So the old nature is just the old flesh, the old drivers, if you like. It's being desire-driven. And uh, Paul talks a lot in his epistles about being driven by carnal desires, fleshy desires, uh, and, and being a victim of that, saying, I can't resist that. I haven't got within myself the capacity to resist these desires and these fears and these judgments that come because I'm not joining flesh and spirit, which is the way the human beings are designed to be. The third term is just the new self. He talks about the new man, if you like, the, the new matikos, the spiritual man. He says this is a spiritual person who's still in the flesh, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, as we saw, it's no longer I that lives, he's saying that old self, that's pinned to the cross. I don't need that anymore. I'm more than that now. It's all, he almost says I'm more than human because I'm human with the Spirit. Uh, he says, but Christ who lives, he's referring to the spirit-empowered new self. So the normal Christian life is to have the old nature not compelled, not, uh, not, I don't have a compulsion to it. I have the new nature living out because I have the spirit of God enabling me, breathing through me to live. So this is the New Testament normal version of life. And so when we get through our day, we're supposed to be able to be, look back and go, yeah, the spirit enabled that day. I'm doing what he breathes through me and I'm living a normal flesh and blood life like everyone else, but, I'm, but I have the greatest home court advantage possible because the Spirit's living through me. Uh, 
It's very normal. It's very tangible. And the reason it feels very normal is because it's still you. It's still your personality. He doesn't want to crucify your personality. He made it. He just wants it to be redeemed. He just wants the spirit to work through that, to be a spirit-controlled person. There's nothing radical about that. There's nothing unconventional about that. It's just raw theology from the basics of the New Testament. So let's look at these, how this flesh and spirit begins to work together and how it can work if we aren't empowered by the spirit. Think about your fears, for example. Now, most believers struggle with their fears. We try at best to manage them. Uh, young adults, particularly uh, in my own just anecdotal counselling, often uh, they'll get to their late 20s, early 30s, and their greatest fear becomes death, of all things. Um, or there's a number of other secondary fears. But these fears come in. And what fear is, is a result. It's a fruit of a deeper root. And the, our, the root in the flesh, our physical flesh and our physical brain, our neural pathways, what happens is God in his wisdom built into us a parasympathetic nervous system. We have this stuff running through our system, adrenaline and, and all the chemicals. And when we feel under threat, we're designed to respond to that threat. You know, if a bear comes and attacks us, we're supposed to not, just not sit there and pray. We get out of dodge. That's the parasympathetic nervous system working. It's supposed to be there, and most of us operate out of fight or flight or freeze. And, uh, and that's just the way humanity, our, our physical flesh, responds. But, if, but that, that response that's, that's designed in the flesh, if that's let go and not empowered and not redeemed and, and the, the spirit working through that, that response turns to fear. See, a normal response of safety doesn't need to result in a response of fear. It's a fruit that's come from a root that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we start to get scared. We start to experience fear and anxiety and depression and, and all the results of our chemicals getting out of whack because we haven't, we've either overdone ourselves or we haven't learned how to bring the Spirit into that life. And so when we sense a threat and we're not able to lean into God in that, and this takes a lot of time and a lot of practice, it takes, it's a journey that we take, we sense insecurity so the threat may be, this person doesn't like me. My boss wants to sack me. Uh, my mum and dad shout at me all the time. And if I can't bring the spirit of God into that space, then I feel insecure, I feel rejected, and I start to sense often, often literally, physically in our, in our chest or our, or our tummy, the physical responses of our parasympathetic nervous system starting to kick in, but we read that as an internal spiritual scream that must be redeemed, that must be resolved. And so without the Spirit reinforcing to us what our identity is, without the, the Spirit of adoption coming in and saying, it doesn't matter what they say, you know you've come home to Jesus, you know you're significant, you know you're awesome, you know you can't outrun my love. If we're not coming from the Spirit, then we must come and produce fear and insecurity and to resolve the scream, then we must manipulate our life to give us another message. So I control the way I look. I control the way I behave. I become significant by getting a better job. I, I, I drive myself way beyond the normal parameters because I'm, I'm, I've got this thing going on and I've got to resolve that scream. Or it might be desires, those inattentions, those compulsions that we all battle with, that we have to deal with. Uh, the Apostle John called them the... Um, and let's have a look at 1 John 2.15. He, he, he boils them right down with a reference back to Genesis. He says, everything in the world... He's talking particularly about desires. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So he says, the lust of the flesh, and you'll know there's, there's chemical, physical drivers in our life. 
and they, they compel us to a certain way. Most addictions are just these desires that have run rampant. They've been, we've allowed them to be fed and we've fed them and we've fed them. It might be an addiction to junk food. It's just you keep feeding yourself junk, your body desires junk food and the desires are running you instead of the Spirit of God running us. So they're, they're lusts of the flesh. And in Genesis 3, uh, the writer there talks about these three elements, the lust of the flesh. Um, Eve saw that the apple or the fruit was, was good to eat. It was the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. It's that, you know that, that when you get nerdy about something or it's something that you like, girls like to go on a shopping trip, guys like to buy a new garment for their bike or something. We get nerdy about stuff. We say, oh, it's new and it's shiny. Let's get one of them. You know, there's nothing wrong with the one we got. It's still working, but we just, our eyes see it comes up on our Facebook feed or our Insta feed, and we go, oh, got to have that. A thousand bucks, not a problem, you know? And it's just, it's the lust of the eyes. It's, it's, this, it's a carnal, fleshy desire that hasn't been meted and tempered by the Holy Spirit. The pride of life. She looked at the, uh, at the fruit and said, this will be good to gain wisdom. This is pride. And the pride of life is about becoming significant when I'm compared with other people. And she saw an opportunity there to, oh, if I grab this, I'm going to be above where I was before. And, um, and this pride of life is a huge driver in, uh, in Western life. So you can start to see, if I don't bring God into these places, if these desires, which the potential for them is woven into my flesh, if, if that's not combined with the Holy Spirit, then there is no opportunity, there's no chance for us to grow. Now, I'll just flash this next one up on screen uh, quick, if we can there, Charlie. This is... Um, this is a summary, if I can, of, of uh, many decades of work from statisticians and, and uh, people who analyse spiritual growth. They talk about the journey of spiritual growth. Uh, Dr. Engel was, uh, used to work for uh, Billy Graham back in the day. He produced this scale that basically said that spiritual awareness, spiritual maturity is a, is a continuum. And we can start at minus 10, where someone is far from God, not interested, not aware of the eternal realm, has no interest in, there's no accountability for right and wrong, there's no morality, there's nothing, right? That's minus 10, far above there. Goes down to, to a place of zero, which is where we say, I'm aware that, that there's right and there's wrong. I'm aware that I can't pay the price for this myself. I need to rely on someone other than myself for salvation. And I take the step of faith over the line saying, Jesus, I'm done without you. And that's just the beginning. Then we get up to, theoretically, plus 10, which would be Jesus walking on earth if you could get your act together that much. The journey most of us navigate is, is from about plus one up to plus six, maybe plus seven if you're um, someone awesome. I haven't got there yet, obviously. But, uh, but where we get stuck is uh, it's easy to play Christian. So you, you, place, you place your faith in Christ, great, I'm there, gospel of salvation, that was awesome, thank you, God. Now I've got to learn to behave myself. I've got to look like these guys now, do I? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll learn the basics of Christianity. I've got to turn up at church. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to do... Okay, I, I, I'm being good in my own strength. And that's where most of us seem to get stuck. And there's a point here between three and four, this line here between the carnal person, which is someone essentially uh, in the Greek living from the flesh only. They're saved, but they're living from flesh to the, to the pneumaticos, the spiritual person, this is where we get stuck. And this is the problem. And uh, the church, myself, uh, we all have to grapple with this as leaders. We can be guilty of malpractice as pastors and leaders if we're not equipping people in a how to take that leap. How do you get from the point where I'm just operating from my flesh to operating with the Holy Spirit? Because if it was natural, we'd all be doing it. 
but we're not. It's not natural. The natural man up here is one who, who is uh, living completely from the flesh and doesn't have that deposit at all. But we still sort of live like them, even though the Spirit's there. So we've got to learn new habits. We've got to learn new ways. And so it's interesting, Dr. Engel uh, placed these two at plus three and plus four. What I found and the reveal material up there, and you can look for all this stuff online, but these two things, behavioural growth and communion with God, they're not so much steps, they're symbiotic. Because you can't get any better in your own strength without deeper communion with God. And when you have deeper communion with God, that's where the behavioural change happens. So these things actually oscillate around. The only way you can grow is to get deeper communion with God and, and live in that empowerment. This is what it looks like to live from God, is to get these things happening together in what, in what I've sort of framed as a rhythm of grace. And so someone who's spiritual is not someone uh, who behaves more piously. They don't, it's not the religious-looking person. It's not the guy who's been to Bible college and we call reverend. Uh, it's, it's not someone who's been saved for decades because you, be, you can be a Christian forever and still not get this thing. Um, it's not one who looks spiritual. It's not the person who's, who does more for God. It's not the person who seems to be a better person because many unbelievers can fit that category. Okay? Many unbelievers are out there that are doing better morally than many of us. It's okay to admit that. The spiritual person is someone who bears the fruit of this power of God in their life, particularly in our day, the peace of God in the middle of our storms, that we can be going through the clatter of life and yet I'm still at peace deep in my heart. Faith, hope, love, these things become indicators of that God is actually here and he's stronger than this life that I've been living in. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. All right, so I've given you the basics. I just had to clear all that stuff up because there's a lot of confusion as to what is spiritual, what is carnal. I'm not trying to convince you you need to behave better. That's Old Testament. Doesn't work. Didn't work then. It's not working now. I don't know whether you've noticed that or not. The spiritual life is one where we can lean back, literally, and return to Genesis 1 and 2, and we begin to breathe again. I'm dust. I'm just dust. The dust might look awesome, or it might not, but the dust and breath, that's a human being. And so that's what we're after. So let's go back to what Jesus said. Repent, believe. He said the kingdom is at hand. The way to appropriate that is to repent and believe. That was his mantra. So I just want to talk about that. And this is how we begin to live from God. Let's start with repent uh, because that's the easy bit. You all get that. The gospel of salvation will teach you how to repent. It says, you're bad. God is good. You need to get better. Simple. The fact that it doesn't work, uh, let's not let that get in the way of a good one-liner. Repent means I basically change the way I think. I intend to change the way I act. There's a, there's a fundamental redirection in my life. That's what repentance means. And repentance is essentially a mental and physical act. I choose, I'm saying, I'm going to change something. I need to make a cognitive decision about that. And the New Testament backs that up. I've got three scriptures here for you. Ephesians 4.22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There's that compulsion again to be made new in the attitude of your minds. So it starts with the mind. You've got to start to think differently and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a shift in thinking starts there. Colossians 3.9, don't lie to each other since you've, take, you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge. So there's a, again, you've got to start with the way you think. Romans 12, 2, don't conform to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by renewing your mind. Now, I can, I can talk about this till the cows come home, but you'll be used to this because we say, yeah, <clears throat> I've just got to keep doing this. I've got to keep 
changing the way I think. And what we do is we walk along our life and we find ourselves in sin. We've fallen short again. I go, oh, I feel guilty now. Sorry, God. Repeat. And we just keep going around this circle. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's so demoralising. And uh, we just think, I'm, I'm trying to be good, but I'm, now I'm living defeated. I was just bad before. Now I'm bad and defeated. <laughs> so it's like, what's the story here? Because repentance on itself was never going to be enough. It's the belief element that makes repentance uh, activate and brings the strength out of that. So repentance essentially is a change of thinking that says my primary needs need to be met from God. That's what, I've got to change the way I think. I'm thinking here, I've got myself into trouble because I've, I've sought to find my needs through what my flesh can provide. My thinking needs to change to say, I've turned to something else instead of turning to God. So my thinking needs to turn around there. So that's the repentance side of it. Then we get to belief. Now what I want to do, this is the bit where it won't come as natural. This is the, the spot where we, we fall down. What does it mean to believe? So you've heard me say that belief, the root word for that, uh, pistis in, in, uh, in the Greek, means to lean on. It's, it's saying that um, I don't just believe in my mind, because anyone can do that. The devil believes. Uh, he won't be in heaven. But to, to, to believe is to rest on it. So I'm, I believe on Jesus. So if Jesus' death on the cross fails me, then I'm failed. There is no plan B. So I'm, I'm leaning on him. So a life of faith is a life of leaning into God. It's leaning into what he has provided. Instead of leaning into, the, into my carnal desires, it's leaning into God to meet those needs. You probably know that. But let's have a look at it in practice. Mark chapter 9 is a really great illustration. The context here is Jesus, he's just gone up the mountain. It's a, it's a high tide mark for the disciples, Peter, James and John, they've gone up with him. Uh, Jesus starts to glow, Moses turns up. Man, look at this experience. Uh, Peter wants to write a blog about it and get all excited. Um, they come down the mountain and the rest of the disciples are arguing with, with a bunch of Pharisees and there's a young, young fella here who's uh, in this terminology possessed by a demon and they can't kick it out. So the Pharisees are arguing with him. It's just a total mess. It's like, it's like a bad day in church. Uh, there's been a ruckus go on. The religious people have come in. There's a, there's a meeting and a, and a vote and all this sort of stuff. And it's just not working out. And so Jesus comes. What are you arguing about? And so we pick the story up. They, talk, they say the, about the boy being thrown uh, into the fire. It has thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus loves this. If you can. Like, really? <laughs> If I can, you know, what's your picture of God here? And he carries on. If everything is possible for the one who believes, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And aren't we there? Hey? It's like, Lord, I do believe. I know it's just, there's a big leap to go here. Can you help me with this unbelief thing? And uh, we all relate to that. So when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Fantastic moment. But the lesson comes out of what comes next. As Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? In other words, they'd been given authority over this stuff. They'd seen demons cast out before they'd healed the sick. They'd seen amazing things, but it wasn't working now. Ever notice that in your life? Some things you're going to overcome, then you get to something else. You go, what's the story? Lord, help me with my unbelief here. He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. 
In, the, in Matthew 17, it's referring to the same passage. Jesus said, also said, it's because you have so little faith. So he, there's, he really identifies a problem here is lack of faith, lack of leaning on God. You're not leaning on God enough here yet. You're not drawing from my power and this authority well enough right now. Th- this is a problem, but it's, it's resulting in, and the cure to that is prayer. Some versions say prayer and fasting. Now, what we do here in the West, you might have seen this, we go, ah, formula. If we want to kick a demon out of somebody, if that's what, what's happening, um, the solution to this, I need to go away and pray for a week and fast, and then this thing's got to come out. And so we think this is a great formula. Let's rely on that formula. If I do this, God's got to do that. And it becomes this weird transactional theology that, that God has to do something. If I do something, uh, he has to respond. But that's not what he was saying, because did you notice Jesus didn't stop and pray? He's telling them to go and pray, but he didn't pray in that moment. So he just cast the thing out. But he's saying, that won't work for you guys. You've got to go and pray. Why? Because they tried and failed. And so prayer was going to be the answer. He said, a lack of faith is a problem. Prayer was a solution. Why? Because if you go and spend time with God, you spend time with the faithful one, you will increase in faith. So the problem, the the solution wasn't a formula. The solution was you need to dig a deeper well of relationship with me, just like Jesus had, because he didn't have to pray because he's already dug that well. He was living from a huge well. You often see through the gospel, he's he's retreating away to pray. He'll spend big segments of time with God, communing with God, digging this well of faith and intimacy so he can hear what God's saying. And then at any moment in the day, he can just draw from that well and, and watch it all happen. So he's saying here, You've got to dig the well. So faith was a problem, but a deep well of intimacy is the answer. So a life by faith isn't a life of formulas. It's not a life of prescription. It's intimacy. It's getting to know him, spending time with him and digging a well and then drawing from that well. So in your day, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but if you have a quiet time with God, and many of us will have that as a regular part of our day, it might be in minutes or it might be in hours, but often the story will come back, look, I have this time with God, but I'm not feeling stronger particularly. I might feel more peaceful, but he's not really talking to me much. But it's afterwards, as I'm living through the day, I notice he guides me, he speaks to me. And that's really how it works. If you can take the expectation off yourself that when you spend time in God's presence deliberately, that that's the place and time where you have to hear everything he has to say, you're actually... Um, misreading the, the dynamic here because what you're doing in your quiet devotional time is digging the well. So the more time you can spend there, that's a deeper and bigger well. As long as you're not drifting off and thinking about the daily news or something. It's, it's no, Lord, I'm, we're talking, we're communing here. I'm digging this well with you and this well is deep and I find peace there. And, it, and when, I'm, when I'm in that time, I can let off myself the burdens of the world and so on. And so you release some stuff and then you're just, you're just there swimming in the river with God, so to speak. It's just a time of peace. But through the day then, you just find yourself, there's wisdom you didn't have. There's, there's knowledge you didn't understand. There's peace where there shouldn't be peace because you're now drawing from that well. And so Jesus did that. He, he built his well and now he was drawing from it. And so the spiritual principle we need to do is, is leaning in to God. How do we dig that well and how do we live from it? And uh, there is no substitute for time. Uh, there's no substitute for a heart that worships. I find if you're someone who drifts uh, when you're just sitting there with God because he, he's, he's invisible, I don't know whether you've noticed that, he's not there, so it's easy to get distracted. It's like, yeah, but... Uh, so I, what I find there is I just write down, if I'm distracted, I write that note down, then I've got permission to forget it. 
Okay, I'm back with you, Lord. I'll get a lot of notes. But um, just, you just sit there and you just dwell and enjoy his presence. And that in itself builds faith as you reflect on what he's done for you in the past. And you present to him the issues of this day and you give them back to him. It's digging that well. And then living from that well through the day. It's a bit like breathing. And it's no mistake that the spirit is, is described in Old and New Testament as breath. Ruach and, and Numa. And uh, that in Genesis 1, when God breathed, he breathed the spirit and then man began to breathe. And this breath that we have is a representation of how we're supposed to live with God. It's breathe out the burdens, breathe out the pain, breathe out the troubles, give them back to him. Breathe in his presence. Take, a de- take deep breaths with God because they're a symbol, they're a sign of this rhythm of grace where this grace is his empowering presence and I can draw him into my life, whatever the situation and he's not going to withhold that because you've been too bad today. You're never too, you've never been too sinful for him to say, no, I, I, I'm with you, I'm with you. Stop living as if I don't exist here. Stop living like you're doing this on your own. Breathe him in and live from the Spirit at any moment. And you can do that. And so this rhythm of life, and I know I've, been, I've oversimplified it a little bit, but it's got to be this simple. It's got to be this simple. Anything that a child can't understand in, about the kingdom is probably unnecessary. Because everyone needs to be able to get this. And just the simple sign of your breathing, where you sit in his presence. Uh, the old mystics used to call it the daily office. Uh, back before an office was even an office. That's where we got the term. But they would go away into a room and literally just breathe with God. Just breathe his presence. Remember. And then rest. And then as you go through the day, you just keep breathing. And, uh, and then it's a matter of when I have my crisis and I feel the, the fleshy desire to panic to worry, uh, to respond. I go, hang on a sec. I'm just going to stop in your head and say, am I going to respond from purely the flesh now or am I going to respond from the Spirit and let the Spirit breathe His presence through me? So this isn't weird. You're doing it already. It's just a matter of how often and how deeply. The normal Christian life is just one that's empowered by His Spirit and it's completely dignified, it's completely strong, it's completely powerful, it's completely normal. It's just bigger and better than the carnal life can give you. This is the Christian life. And so when people see us, they should be seeing people who are above the normal fleshly reactions. They should be seeing, Paul says in um, Corinthians 3, he says, when you're not doing that, when you're arguing, when you're responding out of anger and fear, aren't you just being a mere human? In other words, a mere human is someone who's responding just from their flesh. We are not mere humans. We are believers. We are spirit-empowered believers. And it's life-changing. And it's a journey. I had the chart up on there. It's a, it's a lifelong journey. There are seasons where it will grow. And it's okay. You don't have to sit back and be convicted about any of this. His offer is abundant life, which means I'm calling you to an ever greater experience of peace, of fearlessness, of courage, enthusiasm, overcoming. And sometimes that looks like healing or it looks like a miracle in your life as well. But this peace I've given you is regardless of whether that happens or not. And we can be more than just mere humans. This is a normal Christian life. Let's pray as the band comes up. And I apologise, I've gone a bit long. Father, we just come before you now. Lord, we acknowledge that even before this church started, we didn't want to have any environment that didn't require you to be here. Father, we don't want to be uh, just playing church. Father, we need your presence. Each of us need you, Lord, for today, for tomorrow, on Monday. We need your help. 
Lord, all of us have got fears and anxieties we're, we're trying to manage, things we worry about, hurts we're trying to deal with. Disappointment, disappointment with life is just pervasive now. They've even labelled us the disappointed generation. We were painted a picture as kids that we can do anything and anything is possible and we find out life just tends to kick us in the tail. So Father, in that real, realness of life, we need your presence. So why don't you just now think of the last thing that compelled you that wasn't God, like a fear, a judgment of someone else, a disillusionment with life where you just wanted to give up. Your flesh was just saying, I can't cope with this. I must control it. Where you start to think, how am I possibly going to live? I can't do this. I can't live this way. It's too much for me. I need to take control. Think of that thing and hold it in your hand out in front of you and say, Father, I have believed a lie because I've tried to do this on my own and I haven't trusted you. You've taken too long. You haven't done it the way I think it should look. Father, is there a lie that I believed there? What's the lie? And Lord, do you have a better truth for me? Can you replace that lie with something else? What's the truth, Lord? So Father, that's repenting, where we go from a lie to a truth. But Lord, now we need to rely on you. Father, we lean into you now. We choose to believe, to rely, to to rest on you, that you are sufficient for us today. My supply has run out. You are sufficient. My flesh has run out. You are sufficient. Father, I rely on your provision, on your peace, on your strength, on your forgiveness. And I choose to believe in you. Show me how to do that, Lord, every time I breathe. In Jesus' name.